This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big subject shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. A few years ago, I was standing in a harbour in Hong Kong, just watching these huge, hulking container ships coming and going from the harbour. I felt like I was standing in the centre of world trade itself. But one thing that caught my eye was this tiny little tugboat with a Vietnamese flag on the deck for decoration. This tiny boat would go right up to these ships 20 times their size, bound for Europe or the US or parts of China, and through the power of this tiny tugboat, guide them into place. This tiny boat was simply pushing around these apartment block sized container ships with speed and what looked like relative ease. And I think that situation pretty much perfectly encapsulates Vietnam as a whole. The Vietnamese have gone up against some huge foes over the centuries, fighting off the French and the Americans, and even fighting off the Chinese when they tried to invade Vietnam. Vietnam has punished well above its weight for centuries now, but whilst the French viewed Vietnam as the Far East, far away from the world focus, Vietnam now stands at the very centre of the geopolitical chessboard, the very front line of an expansionist China. Whether it be the western borders with Laos or Cambodia, or the South China Sea hotspot only miles from the Vietnamese coast, or even the northern land border with China itself, Vietnam is right in the path of China's ambitions. But can Vietnam once again push aside the bigger ship? Will Vietnam become the leader of the China-adverse Southeast Asian states? Or will Vietnam simply do their best to batten down the hatches as the storm around them escalates? Well, to discuss all of that, let's turn to our first guest. Part 1. In the Dragon's Shadow There's obviously a very close historical and political connection between the ruling communist parties of the two nations. Um, You know, this is, you know, Vietnam, the Vietnamese communists would not have succeeded were it not for the support that China offered, as well as the, the, you know, against the French, the sanctuary of being able to cross into, you know, the Chinese frontier and and hide out there. Um, And so, you know, there is a sense in which the two co- communist parties have a certain degree, a certain degree of overlapping interest. They have an interest in sustaining their rule in a post-communist world. Um, they see, to a certain extent, that their destinies as communist parties are bound to one another, and, and they have similar interests in in preventing what both describe as American or Western-led attempts at, you know, prompting a a peaceful evolution toward a form of democracy democratic rule, which would, of course, involve the Communist Party no longer being in power. That said, you know, layered atop this, you know, this historical and political affinity between the two Communist Parties is a wider history of um, resistance um, on the part of the Vietnamese um, state um, to Chinese incursions of various kinds. In many ways, Vietnamese national identity has been formed in reaction to China. There have been repeated interventions from the various Chinese dynasties into Vietnam, invasions. There was a period of nearly a millennium in which the northern part of Vietnam was ruled as a, as, you know, as a part of, the, of, of a, you know, a Chinese empire. Um, and you know, this has inculcated you know, a fierce suspicion of China among the Vietnamese public. I mean, the Vietnamese nationalism has a very strong anti-Chinese valence. 
Um, and so, you know, if you talk to ordinary people in Vietnam, you get this very strong sense of suspicion, hostility toward China and its ultimate designs on Vietnam. Sebastian Strangio is an author, analyst and reporter focusing on East Asia. He's also the Southeast Asia editor for The Diplomat and has been reporting from the region now for years. We're very happy to have him on the show today. The Vietnamese Communist Party is in a very tricky position. You know, on the one hand, it's it's got these you know, shared interests with its counterpart in Beijing. It trades a huge amount with China, has a very large trade deficit and relies on um, a lot of, uh, you know, supply chains that originate in China um, for its own export-led growth. At the same time, you have a Vietnamese population that is incredibly suspicious of the Vietnamese Communist Party's relationship to the party in Beijing. There is, a, you know, a lot of suspicion that it is selling out Vietnamese interests to China. And as a result, you see a very interesting overlap between pro-democracy sentiment in Vietnam, people who want reform to the political system um, and they want the Communist Party to open the country up to free elections and so forth. You see a very close overlap between that and criticisms of the party for being too close to China, this sort of nationalist claim that Vietnamese interests are being sold out. The core of the Vietnamese foreign policy these days revolves around Vietnam's four no's. Can you take us through what these are and why these are so important to Vietnamese foreign policy? Okay, so the four no's um, uh, are no military alliances, firstly. Secondly, no affiliation with one country to counteract another. Thirdly, no foreign military bases on Vietnamese territory. And fourth, no use of force or threats to use force in international relations. And these four no's have been formulated as part of Vietnam's post-Cold War attempt to establish, you know, a delicate balance in its relationship between the superpowers. You know, the Vietnamese Communist Party um, is, you know, intensely aware of the, you know, the, the crushing proximity of China to Vietnam. Um, during the 1980s, um, you know, the Vietnamese attempted to live in the shadow of a hostile China. At that point, the two nations were in a state of de facto civil war. Um, after a short uh, and, and incredibly destructive invasion of northern Vietnam in uh, February and March of 1979. Um, you know, th the rest of the 1980s were a period of intense hostility between the two powers. And the Vietnamese realized that, you know, that it was it was very difficult for them to survive in, the, you know, in, the, in, you know, in a state of enmity uh, with China. And so the end of the Cold War saw a reopening of relations. Um, uh, after the resolution of the Cambodia conflict, which was really the linchpin of the of the disagreement um, or the most proximate um, manifestation of the disagreement between China and Vietnam, you know, the re resolution of the Cambodia conflict, um, the end of the Cold War in Asia paved the way to, you know, a, a renormalization of relations between Vietnam and, and, and China. Um, but in order to, you know, Vietnam was forced to you know, maintain, you know, as it, as it be began to establish relationships with the United States and other Western powers, um, you know, it f found itself in a position of having to sort of reassure the Chinese that it would not be used as a cat's paw of Western powers, you know, aiming to contain China, this sort of Chinese perception of a chain of encirclement binding it ever more tightly into its um, own neighborhood has been something that's been a real concern. Um, and and so they formulated the four no's and the four no's were, you know, intended 
to a certain extent, to assuage Chinese concerns that Vietnam would one day, you know, become, you know, the ally of a of a hostile foreign power. It also, you know, benefited Vietnam just in the sense of allowing it to maintain a a credible position of neutrality and balance between the various superpowers. And so, you know, the Vietnamese have, have you know, continued to focus on, you know, and, and assert the four no's in their relationship with the United States as relations have improved. And there's been a certain strategic convergence between Washington and Hanoi um, over shared concerns about China. There are limits to how far Vietnam is willing to go in, you know, in, in, in formally sort of either formally allying itself with the United States or establishing a, you know, a, a strategic partnership with it. Historically, you know, whenever Vietnam has been viewed in Beijing as um, an adjunct of a hostile foreign power, um, you know, th those have been the periods of greatest tension between China and Vietnam. And so I think that, you know, the Vietnamese have a very strong interest in maintaining, um, you know, a position of omnidirectional engagement with everybody. They want to they want to be friends with as many large and important countries as they can be. The Vietnam War, we all know, has been over for almost 50 years now. Has the tension between Vietnam and Washington subsided? And what is that relationship like today? Well, there's been a considerable strategic convergence between the countries, as I said, um, as the United States has become more concerned about Chinese assertive assertiveness in the South China Sea. It has found a willing partner in, in Vietnam, which you know desires a stronger deterrent against China. I would say that the relationship between you know, you know, the U.S. and U.S. and Vietnam is generally pretty good, but there are some areas of tension that remain. You know, one of those, of course, has to do with or, or, or reflects the close relationship that the Vietnamese Communist Party has with its Chinese counterpart, and namely the shared interest that the two have in maintaining their hold on power. This has um, put, uh, you know, among the you know the securocrats, um, you know, at the upper echelons of the Vietnamese Communist Party remains a certain suspicion of the United States and its ultimate intentions in Vietnam. And this idea that the US might, you know, try to foment some kind of peaceful evolution away from communist rule, um, you know, is still palpable um, in the upper ranks of the party. And so there's, there's, and you know, you know, every time that the United States government criticizes uh, the human rights situation in Vietnam or calls for the release of dissidents or, you know, what have you, um, that sort of like stirs up that that concern that exists in Hanoi. The United States has systematically down, you know, uh, scaled down its criticisms of Vietnamese, of the Vietnamese human rights um, situation. Um, in 2014, it formally pledged to respect Vietnam's political system, which was, you know, in Hanoi was seen as a very important step in improving the relations between the two countries. So there's that, that, that sort of ideological question. There's just the broader issue as well of, of the looming presence of China. You know, every step that the Vietnamese have taken in the direction of the United States has been accompanied by anxious backward glances at Beijing. Um, and, you know, everything that they do has to be, you know, um, weighed in terms of how it will be viewed by the Chinese. Given the proximity of China, the economic intertwinement of the two countries and the, you know, the need to maintain, you know, workable, good relations with, you know, um, a nation, uh, you know, with which the Vietnamese have had, you know, a very long history of conflict, um, you know, has, has imposed certain limits on how far um, Hanoi is willing to go in, in you know, in, in creating like either a formal alliance or a closer partnership with the United States. It's still trying to keep these two superpowers in a state of balance. 
And Vietnam has a number of pretty glaring security problems around this issue as well. For one, the country relies on its rivers like the Mekong for so much of its transport, trade, and supplies. But these rivers begin in China and Laos. And China is building numerous dams upstream to the river at the moment, putting the control of Vietnam's water supply in China's hands. Is this a concern in Vietnam at the moment? Well, Vietnam is in a very difficult position. You know, it's sort of trapped uh, almost in a, in a pincer in, in, in some ways. It's facing, you know, Chinese you know, China's growing maritime clout in the South China Sea. It has a land border with China in the north, which, you know, has been an invasion route for, for many centuries. Um, uh, and it also, you know, faces, you know, is uniquely impacted, I think, by the Chinese dam building um, uh, on the upper stretches of the Mekong River. The problem for the Vietnamese is that, you know, the lower, the very broad, slow moving stretches of the Mekong that exist within Vietnam, which is mostly Delta, you know, this is the point at which the Mekong reaches the South China Sea. You know, this is not a, you know, uh, these are not stretches of the river that are very well, um, they're very conducive to the production of hydropower. In, in China's Yunnan province, meanwhile, you know, these are the upper reaches of the Mekong River, the river flows through very deep uh, channels, it's very quick moving. This is ideal for hydropower generation. And so what you have basically is the Chinese deriving a good deal of the benefit of a hydropower exploitation of the Mekong and exporting most of the, 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 uh, the ec uh, environmental externalities downstream. And of course, those are most pressing in the Delta. Um, and, you know, Laos and, and Thailand could conceivably benefit from hydropower dams of their own. Um, but, you know, this is not something that's available for the Vietnamese. So they're bearing all of the cost with none of the benefit. Um, add to that, you know, broader effects of climate change, um, you know, encroaching salination in the Mekong Delta, over farming, over cultivation in that region of the country, which is an intensive agriculture region, you know, and you have real problems. And this, you know, this is, you know, really magnified the, um, you know, the asymmetry that already exists between um, China and the nations of the lower Mekong. Um, it's put the Vietnamese in a very difficult situation. I mean, they've been quite outspoken about, you know, the need for efforts to manage the effects, um, uh, you know, calling on the Chinese government to share data about, you know, its, its release of water from its uh, upper Mekong dams um, in order for the nations downstream to, you know, adjust to, to the, you know, what are increasingly erratic swings in the water levels of the lower Mekong. Um, but really, it's, you know, the, it's really at China's mercy in many ways. And I think that the coming, you know, the coming decades are going to be a very, are, are going to bring a lot of um, serious challenges to, you know, the millions of people who rely on the Mekong Delta for their livelihoods. The other geographic problem for Vietnam is the choke point around the Annamese Mountains through the middle of the country. And for people unaware of what Vietnam looks like, it kind of looks like a very long hourglass with the bigger areas in the north and south. And through the middle, it's quite thin with the Laotian border on the west and the South China Sea on the east. The gap between these two is just a little over 40 kilometers wide with only a few roads going through the Annamese Mountains. An enemy of Vietnam would only need to take a few of these roads across a 40 kilometer gap to effectively cut Vietnam in half again. Historically, Vietnam got around this problem by pushing into Laos and Cambodia to gain some strategic depth. But that isn't really an option these days. 
how is Vietnam trying to compensate for this choke point problem? You know, the Vietnamese Communist Party maintains a certain amount of strategic depth through its compliant relationships with Laos and Cambodia. Um, obviously, the, the the two, well, the, 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 the formerly Communist Party in Cambodia and the um, still Communist Party in Laos are both, you know, both came to power um, with the uh, with the support of Vietnamese um, armed struggle, um, neither would have succeeded in you know coming to power were it not for the Vietnamese. And so, um, you know, for for many years there's been a you know a close security cooperation between you know between Vietnam and these two fraternal nations. Um, there is very close you know interprovincial relationships across you know, the sensitive borders. Um, and I think all of these are sort of, you know, designed to prevent, you know, the, you know, any, uh, the intervention of any outside, hostile outside force, even though that's something that's increasingly unlikely nowadays. During the 1980s, of course, you know, there were, you know, armed rebels still active in the mountains of Laos. There was a large Vietnamese troop presence in that country for, you know, throughout that period. And so, you know, it's within living memory that, you know, that these borders have been, you know, um, under some kind of threat. Uh, and I think that, the, you know, the Vietnamese maintain a, a degree of strategic depth by, you know, maintaining close relationships with, with the governments in Vientiane and Phnom Penh. Of course, you know, China's rising power has begun to slightly change that equation in the sense that now, you know, Cambodia and Laos are two of the most pliant uh, Chinese partners, particularly the Cambodians who, at the end of the Cold War, loosened themselves from um, that very tight fraternal relationship that they had with Vietnam, the UN peacekeeping mission that came to Cambodia in 1992, um, helped to a certain extent dislodge Cambodia from that, um, you know, fr from the very in intimate relationship that had existed through the 1980s, when of course the the the, the communist government in Phnom Penh was was reliant not only on Viet Vietnam and the Soviet bloc for, you know, for aid and so forth, but was also uh, played host to a large Vietnamese occupying army that helped to defend it against um, the various armed Cambodian factions backed by the Chinese in the West. So, you know, I, I think that there is a sense in which the alignments of the late Cold War are beginning to shift. Um, and you know, I, I think that so far the Vietnamese have been quite pragmatic about their uh, Phnom Penh and Vientiane's relationship with China. But I do think there is, you know, a certain sense, uh, you know, that there's probably concern in Hanoi about, you know, the extent to which these two nations have, you know, have, have welcomed Chinese largesse and have built political relationships with China. But like everything else, I think the Vietnamese are hoping that they can maintain, just as they do with their relationships with China, you know, a, a healthy balance between, you know, their relations historical relations with Hanoi and their current relations with Beijing. A regularly overlooked factor when talking about Vietnam is their new importance in the global supply chain. Do you think we'll see Vietnam become one of the prominent manufacturing nations over the next few decades? Well, I mean, it's, you know, Vietnam has become a very attractive destination for investment um, for you know, high-tech industries, electronics manufacturing, um, and so forth. I and mean, part of the reason is that wages have continued to rise within China, um, pushing manufacturers to seek out other, you know, skilled workforces in the region that can, can compete with that, that can, that can do it for, do it more cheaply. Um, Vietnam has a relatively skilled workforce compared to some of its neighbors. And it is, you know, the government has been quite canny at attracting um, large scale investment. Um, 
and they've really succeeded in setting Vietnam up as a, you know, as, as a regional center for the production of electronics and other increasingly high-tech manufacturers. You know, so I actually think that in, in some ways the, the dependency goes the other way. I mean, um, a lot of the things that are produced in Vietnam rely on components that are produced at Chinese factories. And so, you know, if, if China was to sort of decide you know, it wanted to cut those things off to punish the Vietnamese in a similar way that it has done to other nations of late. Um, you know, a lot of Vietnamese um, supply chains would would dry up. You know, the the the, the Samsung um, smartphones and and flat screen TVs that it produces, you know, at its factories in the north of Vietnam would would run would quickly run out of com you know the components necessary to produce them, and that could bring production to a halt and really paralyze um, Vietnam's manufacturing. Industry. I think there's a certain um, weaponized interdependence at play here. Um, and given the asymmetries between the two powers, it's much more likely that a, a significant cutoff of trade w would have a much greater impact on Vietnam than it would on China. And so, yeah, I mean, this is one of the reasons that the Vietnamese Communist Party really needs to ma ma you know, maintain a, a stable relationship with its counterpart in Beijing. Do you think we're likely to see Vietnam's influence in the region increase or decrease over the next 20 or so years? Oh, I think it will increase for sure. I mean, you know, Vietnam in many ways, you know, was forced, you know, um, to bear a two or three decade handicap in terms of economic development. I mean, you know, the, the Vietnam War and the, you know, the economic costs that, you know, resulted from that really didn't come to an end until the end of the Cold War, until the 1990s. You know, it wasn't really at that point until the, you know, the native entrepreneurialism of the Vietnamese people uh, was was given allowed to allowed to have free reign and 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 you know since then the country has grown you know rapidly fast anybody who you know visited has visited a city like Ho Chi Minh City or Hanoi in the past few years you know compared to 15 or 20 years ago you know the difference is amazing um and i mean it's really you know similar in some ways to the remarkable economic transformation um that china underwent sort of you know a decade or so earlier um and so I think that what we're seeing is Vietnam becoming an increasingly important, you know, um, economically within Southeast Asia. Um, you know, it is, is slowly gaining on some of the nations like Thailand that, you know, that whose economies developed at a much, you know, much earlier period. And, you know, Vietnam is rapidly, you know, it's becoming an increasingly important strategic mid-level power in the region. Uh, you know, it's, it's being obviously courted by the United States. Um, you know, it's signing trade agreements with the European Union and other, you know, other outside powers. Um, you know, it's gone from being a, a byword for conflict and revolution to being, you know, a one of the most dynamic economies in Southeast Asia. Um, I, I would I would describe Vietnam as, as the Southeast Asian nation, aside from Singapore, that has the most stable and strategic approach toward China, um, despite in fact, probably because of um, the difficulty of its position vis-a-vis -vis China. So what is Vietnam's path forward? Can they afford to be somewhat detached from the brewing storm in the South China Sea? With each month, the drums of war between America and China continue to beat. But where will Vietnam sit when the music stops? Will war once again come to Vietnamese shores against their will. Well, to talk about that, 
we turn to our second guest. Part two, the domino. Vietnam is a country of a long history, but in recent years, I think the development of it's been very fast uh, and rapid. So I think the face of Vietnam is changing quite significantly in the recent decades. Huang Li Tu is an expert in Asian regional security for the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Huang has written a number of fantastic papers on Vietnam and their role in the growing tensions in the Southeast Asian region between the US and China. She joins us today. Well, you still see um, post-war effects, which is uh, the continuous wars uh, have had lasting effect on the psyche of the nation, but also on its uh, social economical situ situation. The reason why Vietnam developed so fast now after the war is actually uh, also recovering from those decades of wars. So had it not been for wars, I think Vietnam would be in a much different position and probably much more affluent as well. Uh, but it took Vietnam many, many years and it's still taking it to, to a degree to recover from, from the costs uh, of war, including the economic costs of war. Um, and I think after the war, it was uh, after the precisely the the war with the U.S. In, uh, that ended in '75, but also after that, Vietnam had um, fought uh, with Cambodia and a short border war with uh, China. So after those so consequence of consecutive wars, Vietnam was diplomatically very isolated. Uh, didn't have much. Uh, economic and trade relationship with the world. So it was sort of left to its own, still suffered a number of economic sanctions. So all those years uh, along, I think Vietnam had been recovering from the effects of war and post-war uh, political situation. With the war ending almost 50 years ago, how would you sum up the relationship between Hanoi and Washington these days? The relationship is much better these days. I think it took two countries quite a while to reconciliate it. It's still an ongoing process. Um, uh, and a lot of things still needs to be addressed, uh, including um, the uh, legacies of war, um, including clearing the you know leftover remaining uh, landmines and unexploded ordnance, and clearing the land from the Agent Orange that was contaminating the land and affected um, the livelihoods and, and lives of people there. But I think in general, uh, it, it took two countries uh, quite some time to reconciliate, and at the moment, I think it's probably one of the best time of the bilateral relationship. The two countries are working hard to gain mutual trust again. And just so happened that at the moment, um, there is a lot of strategic convergence between uh, the US interests uh, and views in the, on the geopolitical situation in the region uh, that converge with Vietnamese also views on the security situation in the region, particularly in terms of uh, geostrategic Concerns. So there is a lot of room for two countries uh, to develop uh, their mutual relations, not only um, in security terms, but also in cooperation, diplomatic, people to people, but uh, and increasingly closer economic relations. 
At the end of the Vietnam War, the North Vietnamese moved in and conquered the South of Vietnam. Obviously, that was a long time ago, but is there still a North-South cultural divide remaining in the country today? Obviously, it was a process uh, to unify the country under one political system, which was uh, the communist that prevailed. Um, it took some time. It was tough in the beginning, obviously. Um, it was tougher from this for the South that enjoyed um, different type of political uh, governance. But I think uh, it, it's been a long process. Obviously, this is one nation. Um, there are cultural differences. Obviously, people from the North and people from the South have had um, dif cultural differences, regardless of political divide. Um, there's difference in, in, in culinary, in climate, in, in people's temper, as they say as well. So those differences will um, remain, but in terms of political uh, differences, it, you know, it's been several decades already of that reconciliation between North and South. So there isn't that much of um, political divide anymore. Vietnam obviously sits in an incredibly volatile geopolitical hotspot at the moment around the South China Sea. And things seem to be ramping up even further with the announcement of the AUKUS Treaty between the US, Australia and the UK. How is Vietnam reacting to this rising power competition between the US and China with Vietnam smack in the middle? And with that in mind, what was Vietnam's reaction to the announcement of the AUKUS Treaty? Um, I think Vietnam has been quite um, careful and uh, sort of measured in its response and very different from uh, quite strong response from Indonesia and Malaysia in the beginning um, after the after. Uh, uh, Australia announced the AUKUS. Uh, I think most of those reactions were actually addressed to Australia, not so much to the, to, to the UK or, or the US. Uh, the, the, the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Vietnam has released um, a statement, very short and quite enigmatic statements uh, referring to peace, stability and cooperation in the region. But I think the key um, keyword in this statement was that uh, all countries have responsibility to contribute to this common goal, which is peace, stability, and cooperation in the region. And that is not a criticism, right? It's not referring to the nuclear deal, um, uh, the nuclear submarine deal that others in the region refer to as arms race or, or putting question mark on non-proliferation uh, in the region and um, raising tensions. None of that, what Vietnam said, implies those that other countries in the region have implied to or even explicitly said. So I think in general, it's, it's quite a positive um, response. Uh, behind the doors, I think the conversation is that uh, in, in Hanoi, the conversation are that um, you know, Australia has every right to take care of its own national security and, and take measures that will secure its, its defense in, in, the, in the area of great power competition. Um, as long, of course, as it doesn't lead to too much of an arms race. Um, but at the same time, you know, Vietnam also uh, very much understand the need to um, invest in own deterrent capability, right? Um, and it understand that the situation in the region is less stable, less secure, 
and um, everyone has their own responsibility um, to shoulder this uh, a burden of, of uh, keeping uh, themselves as well as the region uh, more secure and stable. So um, I don't expect a much criticism coming from Vietnam towards the deal. What do you see Vietnam's position in the region going over the next 20 years? I think um, Vietnam in macro political terms will be relatively stable. Uh, uh, it has its shortcomings, of course. The party leadership, um, the Communist Party leadership is um, uh, quite senior and they're um, recent. Every five years they have a National Party Congress when there's a change of leadership and new decision, new, um, new directions of five-year plans, policies. Um, the last party congress that happened was just earlier this year, um, in, in uh, January, end of January and early February this year. But that uh, party congress didn't see much of the change, new blood, new generation within the, the uh, central committee members as well as top leadership in, in the Vietnamese Communist Party. So the party is currently... Um, you know, facing uh, some challenges related to lack of younger blood. But I think in general, if you look at you beyond that, I think that would be overcome. And um, in 10 to 20 years, I, I, I would still think that um, it's going to be relatively stable. Um, it's not like uh, some of its neighbors in Southeast Asia where a different generation of leaders will bring completely different personalities and who may have a really tremendous effect on their foreign policy. Um, I'm giving an example of Philippines uh, uh, most recently. But I think Vietnam's foreign policy direction uh, will remain on the same track, which is very consistent in its claim in South Sea. Um, uh, that still multilateralizing, internationalizing, being very active in trade uh, liberalization, expanding its diplomatic network, um, and forward leaning in many ways. Internally, it might stay relatively conservative unless, like I said, um, there's a, a generation change within the leadership party. And in a way, it might be quite inevitable. Vietnam is widely seen as one of the most crucial geographical spots in the entire world. To its west lay the newly emerging economies of Thailand and India. To its south lay the sleeping giant of the region, Indonesia, as well as the now far more active and aggressive Australia and the US fleets that accompany her. To the east lay the most contentious waters in the entire world, the South China Sea. But to its north, lies the country where they either become Vietnam's greatest ally or its greatest enemy, China. Vietnam has been at war with China many times over the previous centuries, the most recent being just in 1979, and China has looked southward for expansion now for almost as long. But what is the relationship like between Hanoi and Beijing? Can Vietnam be the nation to topple a giant again? Or will they fall into the gravitational pull of the regional giant? 
Well, for that, we turn to our third guest. Part 3. Boxed in. Vietnam really has transformed its role in Southeast Asia and its position in Southeast Asia over the course of the last 15 years. Uh, 20 years almost, when, when they joined ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations in 1995, they were, along with Laos and Cambodia, essentially a charity case being integrated into that organization. And fast forward to 2021, they're in every respect a leader, uh, a dynamic country with a, a growing population, young and hungry and eager to use the organization and provide leadership in the region. Gordon Flake is the CEO of the Perth US Asia Center and one of the world's leading authorities on strategic developments in the Indo-Pacific. Gordon has worked with a wide range of national governments in defense issues and strategic planning and is also a lecturer at the University of Western Australia. Glad to have Gordon back on the show today. Uh, A fundamental difference that I think few understand because of their history. Uh, And if you'll indulge me, I'll just give you a little bit of a personal anecdote. In in 2010, I took my board of directors um, to uh, Vietnam for a couple week long trip in everywhere from Hanoi to Ho Chi Minh City. And every single conversation we had turned immediately to China. Uh, And this is quite a contrast to at the time, think back to 2010, when countries like Korea and the others were talking about the country that would not be mentioned, you know, certain countries. (laughs) The reality is uh, the Vietnamese were acutely focused on on China, uh, and it's because they have such a long experience with China being their next-door neighbor. And I'll relate the specific experience of Hu Ngoc, this, at the time, 80-year-old national living treasure, I think he must have passed on by now, historian. Uh, And he offered to give us uh, a thousand years of Vietnamese history in one hour. And as he launched off his his explanation, he gave it quite simply. He said, Vietnam. Viet means people, Nam means south. And now you may ask yourself, where are the people of the north? Let me tell you. For a thousand years, China occupied our land And during that time, many people decided to become Chinese. They assimilated. But Vietnam is by name and definition the people who do not want to be Chinese. (laughs) And it was just this sharp, stark statement that was surprising and is still surprising today in a region like Southeast Asia where most countries are quite circumspect about talking about or even calling out China. The Vietnamese have their own... Uh, self-perception, you know, that they eventually defeated and chased out the Chinese, they defeated the French, they defeated the Brits, they defeated the Americans. Uh, And so uh, with a sense of victory, there's not a sense of victimhood, but rather self-confidence. And that really makes Vietnam stand apart in the region. I think one of the biggest litmus tests around this relationship is the Vietnamese worries about the Chinese dams being built on the upper Mekong in China and Laos. Do you think Vietnam is right to be worried about these? Vietnam shares with Laos and Cambodia concerns about what China is doing upstream on the Mekong, and it's impacted by it tremendously. Um, interestingly, uh, if you, you know, go back to the end of the Vietnam War, 1975 through 1980 or so, uh, Vietnam was, was generally presumed to be a relatively malign influence among its near neighbors, Vietnam and Cambodia in particular. 
in Cambodia, obviously, they played a very important role in chasing out the Khmer Rouge, ending the, the, the horrors of the killing fields um, of Pol Pot in that era. Uh, and in Laos, they, they still had a, a very strong, influential role in both of those countries. Vietnam plays a very important role as a bit of a counterbalance to China. Uh, and now, obviously, Vietnam faces the same dynamics uh, that the others do as well. But I think if you'd asked me the question when I took my very first trip to Laos back in the early 1990s, there was deep concern about Vietnamese influence in Vientiane. Today, I think Vientiane and Phnom Penh alike would view Vietnam as an important partner to counterbalance or lessen Chinese influence, which is far greater and far more of a concern to them. With that in mind, who do you think has more influence over Cambodia and Laos? Is it Vietnam or is it China? Uh, it depends. Uh, I mean, obviously, the economic heft of, of Beijing is such that both Cambodia and Laos are wildly considered to be bought and paid for by China. Um, but I wouldn't uh, um, understate the continuing and long-standing relationship ties that means that Vietnam remains very influential. Um, if I had to give a, a balance of, of influence today, I'd probably push it towards China. And that is, you know, despite the proximity, geographic proximity to Vietnam, it's just, you know, 1.2, 1.3 billion people. Um, and a deliberate attempt by China to influence it means that you know, there are positions taken, say, in ASEAN um, that it, Laos and Cambodia might take that Vietnam would not like, um, uh, that are much more influenced by Chinese investment uh, than by Vietnamese. They're still not, comp they're not peers by any means. You know, you've got a population of 98 million uh, in, in Vietnam compared to, you know, again, 1.3 billion in China. And obviously the, the size of their economies are quite dramatic. Vietnam is the 40th largest economy in the world compared to the second largest economy in the world in China. So big gap still. Do you think Vietnam's main concerns are with its western borders with Cambodia and Laos or the eastern border into the South China Sea? The concerns that Vietnam have extend beyond their 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 land borders or their their physical borders uh, with Cambodia and, 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 uh, and are at this point heavily focused in the maritime borders on the South China Seas. So Vietnam has actually been probably the most vocal and most active uh, resistant to Chinese positions in the South China Seas. And that includes countries like the Philippines or Malaysia or others who are climate states in that process. But having said that, you know, Vietnam has its own land border with China. Uh, and I think as they see Chinese investment in, in um, Laos and in, in Cambodia, they have concern. And that goes back to my anecdote at the beginning. Uh, their long, centuries-long, millennia-long history with China, uh, I, I would be confident raises concerns that riparian states like Laos and Cambodia would fall too much under the sway of China, not in their interest. If there is a pushback in the South China Sea, Vietnam will be the effective front line, as the Vietnamese naval facilities in Haiphong are only about 200 kilometers from China's in Hainan. If there is a ramping of tensions between Hanoi and Beijing in the South China Sea over the islands they both claim, will Hanoi turn to India or Australia or the US to support them in the conflict? Well, it's, it's actually more of a, an all-of-the-above scenario. 
Um, obviously, you know, the levels of communication, cooperation, coordination with the United States Navy is high. It's not uh, a surprise that even in this COVID environment that there have already been very early, very high-profile visits by U.S. officials to Vietnam, including Secretary of Defense uh, Austin and others. That, that relationship, I think, will only strengthen as Vietnam becomes increasingly concerned about issues in the South China Seas and its own role in the region. But it's not limited to the United States. I think you see Vietnam, like others in the region, welcoming the presence of a, a, a United Kingdom, a UK aircraft carrier, welcoming French and German and Australian ships in the region, welcoming an Indian role. Uh, individually, these other countries probably don't amount to much, but collectively, they become part of what we would consider the rules-based order when it comes to maritime issues. And the more countries that are involved, as far as I'm concerned, the better, because it it uh, disallows that G2 narrative that this is somehow an issue between uh, China and, and the United States, and it really becomes much more a question of the rules of the, the road, international standards, systems, norms, organizations, et cetera. I think the relationship between Vietnam and India is a particularly interesting one at the moment, with the Vietnamese foreign minister calling India one of its closest allies. Even now, India is supplying Vietnam with quite a number of naval patrol boats. So why are these two nations becoming so close with each other? Well, India has had a, a look east policy, and then more recently they've had an act east policy, which is part of their overall Indo-Pacific strategy. I think India would like to have a similar relationship with most of the countries in Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Thailand, Malaysia, Philippines, etc. Um, I think what you're seeing in that particular bilateral relationship is more to do with Vietnam's interests, willingness, and capabilities than Indian interests. Of course, India is interested, but the reason they're particularly interested in, in Vietnam is because of Vietnam's uh, capabilities, what Vietnam is willing to do able to do, uh, and the fact that Vietnam is is reciprocating that level of interest from India. Um, so uh, again, it, it speaks volumes about uh, the potential uh, that Vietnam has, and more importantly, its capabilities today. Well, with these closening relationships, what is the likelihood that Vietnam would join something like the Quad or an AUKUS-style agreement with partners like the United States and Australia? I, uh, I don't think any country is going to join the Quad in a specific anti-China alliance because the Quad itself is not an anti-China alliance. Really what it is is a coordinating function and an increasingly important one of, of, of you know, four like-minded countries in the United States, Japan, Australia, and India. And those countries are going to be seeking cooperation with other countries like Vietnam, like South Korea, like Indonesia, on a range of issues, depending on the, um, the, the, the issue and depending on the timing and the scenario. Uh, Vietnam continues to be governed by the Communist Party of Vietnam, the, the, the Workers' Party of Vietnam. And as a result, they have very long-standing and strong party-to-party -party ties with China, and they're not looking to antagonize or be enemies with China in the same way that none of the countries in Southeast Asia are looking to kind of make a formal choice. But at the same time, because they have their own territorial disputes, because they've got their own concerns and their own history with China, I think you're going to see them eagerly seeking um, hedging 
options, uh, eagerly seeking other alternatives, which would include the Quad, but not in any formal way. During the Cold War, Vietnam had very close relationships with the Soviet Union. But how are the relations between Russia and Vietnam today? Oh, you know, they're nostalgic. <laughs> you know, that like so many things, I tend to still view largely Russia as a as the, the, the more irreverent people described as a gas station masquerading as a country. Now, that's obviously an overstatement because as a nuclear power, as a member of the UN Security Council, they still have a very important international role, but largely as a spoiler. Um, there is longstanding personal relationships, corporate relationships of Vietnam, but in no way, shape or form uh, does Russia have a major role in Vietnam's future. The Vietnamese army has famously fought off the Americans and the Chinese. And in the 70s, they also invaded Cambodia. But how capable is the Vietnamese military today? Well, um, again, if you're talking about numbers and resources and technology, you wouldn't put any one country up against China. Um, and again, that remains the great fallacy of looking bilaterally at kind of US versus China as well. Really, you have to look at the broader um, ecosystem, you know, the broader networks that exist in the process. Uh, Vietnam has shown that despite the fact that in technology um, and resources, despite being overmatched in the colonial era or the historic era or during the Vietnam War era, in their ability to suffer, to marshal resources, uh, to defend the homeland, if you will, is unmatched. Uh, so. I, I, I doubt there's any scenario in which Vietnam uh, would, would yield an inch, would take a backward step at all to the Chinese or anybody else in defending Vietnam. To play a bit of devil's advocate here, the Vietnamese have been guided by the four no's for quite a while now, but how long can they really hold on to these? Do they risk being left behind as regional alliances start to form around them? Yeah, my, my own view is if you actually look at practice versus rhetoric, the salience has already faded along a lot. I mean, it's, it's changed dramatically over time. Uh, Vietnam is, is, if nothing else, pragmatic. Um, and and it, I, I, they're a fascinating case study for me um, in their ability to look forward, not back. And part of that is demography, demography, demography. A, a very young population who, given the luxury of a national narrative of victory, is able to move forward in a way that many other countries are not. So many countries in the region remain captive of their own histories. China, first and foremost among them, right? I mean, so many of their actions are just informed by China's past and in particular by the, the century of shame and suffering, right? Similarly, you know, if you're in Korea today, you would think it was 1592 and Hideyoshi had just invaded Korea today. Um, and many of the countries in Southeast Asia are so deeply informed and scarred by their colonial experiences. And Vietnam, again, by dint of demography and, and their own national narrative are, are quite different. So I I actually, whether it's the communist era, which obviously is, is important to, to realize that that party remains in control and it is a one party state and there remain very serious issues of human rights and of, 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 of you know, treatment of religion and, and minority, minority, groups, minority groups, et cetera, that are important. But in the end, 
it, it is a remarkably pragmatic country. I mean, so here you have this, this country that is a leader in ASEAN, that was a leader in, in getting the Regional Cooperative Economic Partnership Agreement across the line, that joined the World Trade Organization, that was a signatory of the Cooperative and Progressive Agreement on the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the CPTPP, when it was the country that had uh, you know, the, the biggest lift to, to qualify, and as a result, will get the most out of that agreement. So they're, they're leading in that front. And those 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 relationships, I think, are far more important than the slogans of the past. Vietnam is looking to form close ties with a lot of its regional neighbors, like the Philippines and Malaysia. But at the same time, they also have large claims on big parts of the South China Sea, which overlaps with its regional neighbors' claims. How do these mutual claims of the South China Sea that are the bedrock of the tension between nations like Malaysia and China come into play when it's tensions between Vietnam and Malaysia? Well, you you, um, you point out something which is really important. Uh, so much of our our recent narrative on the South China Seas is China and the Nine Dash Line against everybody else, when the history itself is far more complex. It is everybody else against everybody else, right? They all have their 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 claims, and their claims don't just conflict with China. China has just been the most egregious and has, has been the most overreaching in the scope and the clarity of its claims. Uh, but I've actually been struck by how little actual coordination and support there has been between, say, Taiwan, you know, which, which <laughs> itself is a claimant, uh, but kind of adheres to a more maximalist Chinese kind of position, and the Philippines, and Vietnam, and Malaysia, and Indonesia, and the others, where candidly, um, a coordinated effort uh, against a, 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 a more closely articulated and clearly um, overwrought Chinese position would be helpful, but you, you don't see it. I mean, so, um, you know, if you think back to the UN Special Tribunal, uh, in the case that the Philippines actually took the Chinese to the court and won, um, it was you know the Japanese and the Australians and the Americans who were vocal supporters of of, of that tribunal decision and a Vietnam's uh, a Philippines position, although the Philippines subsequently backed off of it and the other claimant nations themselves were not vocal, um, and and so. Yeah, uh, yeah. This it's a complex issue. It's it's not as binary as you might think. Do you think the echoes of the Vietnam War are still in the psyche of defense planners in Vietnam, worrying about bigger nations coming in and attacking them? Do you think this factors into the decisions that are made by Hanoi at the moment? Oh, yeah. Both in, say, here in Australia and in the United States, there are far more people who view Vietnam through the prism of the Vietnam War there than there are in Vietnam. And part of that is by dint of demography, right? A very young uh, demographic who, you know, the vast majority of which were born after the war uh, and who are f very much focused on economic opportunity. Uh, and, and so, you know, it, you know, the public opinion polls, views of the United States are remarkably positive, you know, in terms of in desired economic partners, you know, across the board. Vietnam has moved on in a way, and I was talking about this earlier, that few other countries in this history-obsessed region have. Um, and that's not to say Vietnam doesn't have a history, but I'm, I'm really interested in this from an academic level. Um, defeat 
you know, whether you're talking about World War II and Poland or whatever, defeat um, in some ways freezes your historical narratives and, and binds your historical narratives in a much more powerful way than does victory. So, you know, China, having suffered so much during the, the, the period of, of, of colonization at the hands of European powers, now is still so wrapped up in that narrative and reversing that narrative. Almost every action still remains part of that and their own fear of their own internal divides. Where, you know, Vietnam has just got to, despite how horrifically they suffered during the Vietnam War era, and even prior to that, right, during French occupation, uh, are remarkably forward-focused. Uh, and, and I find that to be an admirable characteristic that we should all learn from. And my last question is, do you think that Vietnam is set to take a almost leadership role in the Southeast Asian region? I'm very bullish on Vietnam. I think that's probably obvious from my comments uh, to this point. Um, they will continue to grow in terms of size, population, economic heft, and importance regionally. Um, be, again, it's just by dint of their performance. Uh, and so I think, you know, going back to your earlier questions, why is the U.S. so keenly interested in Vietnam? Why is Australia? Why is Korea? Why is Japan? Why is India? You know, the, the reason is because of Vietnamese capability and because of their trajectory. And I think uh, yeah, at this point, you're pretty wise to bet on Vietnam. Vietnam has proven itself time and time again as a nation to be taken seriously. It has endured attacks and hardships that would have broken almost anyone else. But the China question is the big challenge Vietnam now faces. Whilst the eye of the storm was once the Western Front in Europe, or a divided Berlin, now the eye of the storm is right here on the Vietnamese coast. Vietnam is trying to do what it can to stay neutral and walk a fine balance. But can that really last forever? Would a change of government away from the Communist Party in Vietnam force Hanoi down a different road? Or will the economic dependence on China simply force Vietnam to remain passive? Or will Vietnam simply take the mantle as the leader of ASEAN from a somewhat reluctant Indonesia? These are questions still yet to be answered. But if there was any nation that would be able to pull off the impossible, I would almost certainly think it would be Vietnam. Thank you so much for tuning into the show this week. It has been another big month for us here at The Red Line. October 7th is actually the Red Line's two-year anniversary of the show, with 53 episodes and not a single fortnight missed over that two-year period. And with September being a record month for listenership, we could not be any more appreciative of all the support and love you guys have shown us. And to celebrate our two-year anniversary, coming up we have a bunch of bonus content coming out, such as some behind-the-scenes videos with the entire Red Line team, our fourth geopolitics pub quiz, as well as myself and the senior staff playing an open game of Hearts of Iron this weekend on our Discord server. And we're looking for some friends and fans of the show to jump on and play the game with us. There are a lot of countries to play, so the more the merrier. If you want to be a part of our Hearts of Iron game or jump on our pub quiz, you can find all the links on our Twitter, Reddit, Facebook, Instagram, and Discord on at the Redline Pod. Or if you want to chat to me directly, I'm on the Twitter handle at MyKilliardOz, Oz is in Australia. Otherwise, you can visit our website, www.theredlinepodcast.com. As just a small token of appreciation, we are also reading out the latest Patreon's name to sign up as of time recording. 
So a big thanks for this episode goes to Neil Powell, who is our latest Patreon. This show would not be possible without the support of our Patreons, who donate a small amount of money each week to help us keep this show going. For our existing Patreons though, we've updated our website to dedicate each of our episodes to an individual Patreon. So check out our website to see which of the episodes we've dedicated to you if you are a current Patreon. But if you aren't a Patreon yet and you feel that you could donate a couple of bucks a week, we would greatly appreciate it as it helps us keep this show running. But for now, this episode on Vietnam is dedicated to our fantastic new friend, Neil. As usual as well, here are our three book recommendations if you want to take this subject further. The first is In the Dragon's Shadow by Sebastian Strangio for a look into China's ambitions in the region. The second is Asia's Cauldron by a friend of the show, Robert Kaplan, for an idea on how important the South China Sea question is to solve over the next few years. The third is Vietnam, Rising Dragon by Bill Hayton for a look at the internal politics of Vietnam. I want to give a thanks to our guests as well, Sebastian Strangio, Huang Li Tu, and Gordon Flake. All of you were amazing to work with on this one, and we really look forward to having you back on the show. I also want to thank my entire team, Owen Swift, the producer, Perry Grace and Daniela Zivella, our research assistants and writers, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, and Nick Much, our field correspondent. There is no way we could have got to two years without this amazing team, and I am the luckiest man to have these guys behind me. The last thanks, of course, goes out to you for tuning into the show. It's been two years, 53 topics, dozens of articles, and there is no way we could have gotten here without all of your support. And I really do still love being part of this show. So thank you for being with us. In some cases, some of you have been with us for two years, and I really can't even begin to say how much that means to me. We've had so much fun over this last two years, and I really look forward to the next two. The show will be back in another fortnight with another international episode. But until then, thank you, and good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Redline podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit the Redline Podcast dot com.